HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Dine in Brooklyn is a 10-day event featuring restaurants in the greatest borough on planet Earth. Learn more at dineinbk.com and discover the best of Brooklyn's restaurants Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here today with Daniel Lieberson of Lindera Farms, which, though, is a farm... And, and it's not quite a misnomer. doesn't really describe what you do on that farm. Yeah, no. What, what I do on that farm is, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's foraging. It's a lot of drinking. Um, it's, 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 it's a whole wide variety of activities, mostly those two things. But uh, no, so it, it, we call it a farm just because the nomenclature makes more sense. But the truth is it's a nature reserve. Um, it was uh, originally a, a cattle ranch, actually. And... It was a free-range cattle ranch, and what a lot of people, when they hear free-range, they think, oh, wow, that's awesome. The animals are being treated well. Well, funny story <laughs> is uh, uh, free-range with cows, uh, with, 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 with most livestock, is generally only so much of a good idea because it aesthetically seems pleasing, but it actually means that they're being allowed to roam anywhere, and the, uh, you know, for, for bovine uh, 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 animals, they're going to gravitate towards water, and we actually have a stream that runs through the length of the property. That is uh, ultimately becomes a tributary into the Chesapeake Bay watershed, and what people in the region in, in, in the Mid Atlantic know, but not doesn't necessarily as well propagated outside of it, is the biggest contributor of pollution to the watershed is agricultural practices surrounding the, the region. So what my family did was we we purchased the property and then we restored the embankments alongside the stream. We actually had to build in uh, new oxbows into the stream and, and essentially do everything we could to uh, create a uh, more ecologically friendly environment. But um, part of that, at the time I was cooking, was, um, was to kind of, uh, you know, and they already had this direction, but I, I, I think I emphasized a little bit more trying to really focus on native plants being reintroduced that were also edibles. Um, the idea at that time being like, yeah, one day I'll get a restaurant near here and we'll be able to, we'll be able to source everything off there. And that clearly didn't happen. But uh, 
uh, that was that was the goal, and it, it, it it's panned out in a in a different way, but still pretty effectively. It's interesting because you went to school for poli sci, yeah, and to hear you talk about what will inevitably be a discussion on vinegar, yeah, <laughs> is is a fascinating thing to hear about preservation being part of conservancy, mm-hmm. and and the boiling branch stream that is a oh, uh, trickle. Boiling, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, it, uh, I, I think I see where you're going, and like, it, you, would you would you kind of? I think the way, if I had to sum up my view on Lindera and, and, and my view on sustainable agriculture in general, is that it is a uh, it is a systemic uh, error to approach sustainability as being a charity or a, a charitable or an ethics issue um, in and of itself. You you have to make it something that is participatory. Um, when people. You know, and, and we grew up with, you know, rainforest cafes and stuff like that, where, you know, you walk in and there's like, there, you know, it's it's it has nothing to do with the cause. Right. But they co-op that. And then on the way out, you put 25 cents in a save the rainforest campaign jar. And like that's your ethical. Well, I mean, the an, an, animatronic monkey does yeah, say your exactly. name and sing you happy birthday. Exactly. And like the gorilla threatens you unless you save its home. It's it, 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 like that. That's how I would have built it. But uh, it, and it's and it's and it's a great idea. And, and it's good to participate in those things. And I, I do encourage, you know, involvement with profits but i think that if the only time that you can experience like positive returns on um uh you know contributing back to the environment and, and adopting really sustainable purchasing pad, uh, habits is like um occasionally you get a meal you like or you just feel good about the fact that you made a contribution to sierra club or nature conservancy or what have you then like your impact is really limited considering that the other side of the debate the people who are currently destroying the environment are uh in are are, are in a, a monetized profitable industry that that translates into a very persistent lobbying effort so when ships are down exxon mobil doesn't uh, economically exxon or, or, or you know large oil and gas companies they're not uh uh so constrained that they can't sell for a lobbying arm but conversely you know um a nonprofit that just see, that you know sees most of its charitable contributions dry up in a period of time like that. Yeah, they're they're really hurting and their influence drops proportionately. So, so do you use shame? Do you tell people <laughs> uh, buy my vinegar? And in, in, in turn, you're helping the Chesapeake watershed. You're you're creating clean water, and if you don't, <laughs> it's just full of piss and vinegar. Well, well, uh, well I'm th- those are, those are there anyway. But um, it's uh, no. I, what I would say is you. Um, it, it, I mean, I, I think I'm just genetically predisposed to, 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 uh, sh- to shaming people into everything. It's, it's just Jewish predisposition. But um, I, I think uh, it's not so much about that. You, you want to give something. That, at the end of the day, like I tell people, so uh, we have a lot of people where we're, the, the vinegars I make are completely unpasteurized. They're all totally raw. The probiotics are there at every stage. So it's not just like at the very, you know, you get the mother incorporated back into it, for example. Like, you know, we're talking about raw from the honey ingredients we use to make the meads. Uh, and then that goes through all the way. The honey itself is, of course, completely unpasteurized. So um, I, I've had to learn different aspects of the health benefits of vinegar on mass. So not just the probiotic benefits of say, you know, raw ethanol fermentation or unpasteurized honey or acetobacteria, but kind of everything in tandem. And I always end up telling people like halfway through the description, like all the good things that come out of it is look, I'm not a doctor uh, <laughs> and for very good reasons. Yeah, I tell people that all the time too. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, d- despite the white lab coat and the latex gloves I'm wearing in, in the middle of public like this. Uh, no, it, 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 there is a moment where you kind of go like, 
oh, I'm a cook, but my background is culinary. I want you to be able to just enjoy this. And if you don't know anything beyond, hey, this has positive ecological ramifications to it and it tastes good. And that's like as much as I need to know, then that's fine to a certain degree. Like the idea with this fundamentally should be practicality. If you know, not everyone is going to be interested in that aspect of it, but I think everybody doesn't want to, everybody would like to have something that they enjoy in their life. And most people would not like to participate in something they hate, which is one of the problems like health food, for example, has this in spades where you're constantly fighting an uphill battle of that sort of like eighties, nineties ethos of, Oh, well, if it's healthy, it must taste terrible. And now you see uh, companies in this ranges, everything from like beverage companies, like honest tea, and Suja, which are massive to, you know, um, relatively small producers who are focusing on uh, probiotics and, 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 you know, raw fermented foods. And, and, and the, 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 the consensus is if it does not taste good, do not sell it because it only hurts you in the long term. And it is not, uh, you know, it, when the next health trend comes along and you no longer become relevant, I think this is one of the things that you're seeing with a lot of people who produce kombucha, right? Like where, you know, you talk to a lot of people who are producing, at least around the DMV area, and they were steadily climbing and then it just plateaus. And then you taste a lot of the products and like the ones who kept, kind of kept going are the ones who are making a good product, not just somebody who was making, going through the process of kombucha and sort of taking advantage of a, of a culinary trend, which shifts too, too so, fast now. So in that, in, in vinegar, yeah. which I'm hoping you sign at the end of your emails instead of <laughs> sincerely in vinegar, Daniel Emerson, yeah. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about taste. Vinegar and, geek. Is, yeah. Yeah. What was the first time, what was your first taste of acid and what was your first understanding of good vinegar versus bad vinegar? Oh, vinegar. You said, uh, <laughs> sorry, college was weird. So um, uh I think the first time I was really floored by a vinegar was uh, minus eight. The uh, the uh, Montreal producer of uh, it's a it's a ice wine based vinegar, and you know it's colossally expensive, but it's really cool. And you know he was one of the first guys really really in North America I think um, outside of Cats to to really take vinegar production truly seriously. And um, I think like every, you know we're predisposed as Americans to thinking that vinegar is just absolute shit. And that was the first time where I kind of, it was still sharp. It was still, you know, uh, caustic, but like just the palette was really, really wide. And, you know, not too long after that, he was doing uh, native a, we, I was, I was working for, uh, uh, Brian Voltaggio at the time. And I remember we got a bottle in advance of its release and I thought it was a really cool, uh, idea. And I just, it was the first time I thought like, Oh, you can actually do stuff with this, but it wasn't until I saw what Magnus was doing at Favakin where I started to think, okay, what does this look like when we stop trying to make Italian vinegars here or Spanish vinegars or French? Like when we just ditch these approaches and we say, okay, what are our agricultural products and, and what are our native ingredients and how would that reflect if, if these same concepts rather than being constructed around European vineyards had originated here in the United States? What would we be looking at? Because that's what that's what Rene and Magnus were ultimately doing at the end of the day and, and Mezzo Efschland and, and all these other guys like uh, Rasmus Kofod, um probably butchering his last name. Um, but at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're just saying, okay, we, we understand the technique. We understand the science. We understand the process, but these are not our ingredients. Um, these are, these are non-natives. So, so what do we have here? And as Americans, we don't really do that too much. Well, are we just, uh, at least I feel we're a generation or two too late sometimes, or it's cyclical because you look at cidery uh, yeah, yeah. and that exploding right now with every cider mill there often was cider vinegar either intentionally or not mm -hmm. um 
there must have been a point in this country where, like most things, vinegar went big ag. So I think that that's true, but 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 I would I would push back on the notion that we're generations too late because I actually think that that one of the things that's been very unique about the American culinary experience is that we look if you look at food from a practical standpoint, restaurant wise, right? The United States has moved at a faster pace than any country in human history um, because we went from sort of cliched archetypes of food with no real grounding into having like some of the leading culinary minds on earth period um that is partially because we don't have the traditional constraints that other countries do and what i mean when i say traditional constraints is actually more cultural like if you try to do what i'm doing with vinegar and i'm paltry right i, I i'm not a, a wiley or a grand Ackett's or, or 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 john shields or somebody somebody operating at that level where you kind of just upend absolutely everything about food but just with vinegar alone, right? If I tried to do this in Italy, I'd be run out of the country. They they banned hydrocolates for Christ's sake. So, like, if I were to try and do this there, it would not be accepted. There would be no market, and then ultimately the business would be quashed just by market forces. So it was almost beneficial that you were in this vinegar void. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and I think that, but I think that that's true with food in general, though. And I think that that's kind of it's it's the weird unintended benefit of being super late to the party is that. All the science was figured out in the means. Well, not all the science. Far, far, far from all the science. But but we know more about technique and process than we've ever known when it comes to food. And so now, you know, we aren't constrained by needing to do something a certain way, but we get the process of it. So if you want to play around with any ingredient or technique... You know, there isn't going to be kind of a cultural shaming that that hits you the way that like, you know, guys like Massimo Batura or Carla Krakow get hit with or, um, you know, and Sophie Peak or, 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 you know, you, you name it. There is just a massive cadre for an Albert for, for like, like for years and years and years. These guys were just getting laughed at uh, by a lot of like contemporary Sp- or by, at that time, uh, mainstream Spanish media when they would talk about food. You know, here's this, you know, mad scientist in Rosas. And then, you know, years after they get started, you start to see, oh, wow, these guys are doing the most impressive stuff on Earth. And it isn't even Spain that recognizes it. Right. It's 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 foodies from other countries where they don't have those traditional bindings. And so they can see the food for what it is. It, it, it's, it's kind of a forest through the trees thing, I think, but we just don't have it here. We're too disparate. We don't, we didn't build a culture around food and tradition in that way where it's more, um, it's too broad, you know, we're going to take a quick break Sorry. on that. No, no. What I, what I love is that everyone may have thought this was a simple episode about vinegar, vinegar. but you're getting your culinary history 101 as well. I'm a nerd oh. if nothing else. <laughs> We're going to come back, talk about the technique and process of making vinegar, cooking with vinegar, and everything that goes with that. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Dine in Brooklyn is a 10-day event featuring restaurants in the greatest borough on planet Earth. Taking place Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th, Dine in Brooklyn is celebrating the five-star flavors that make Brooklyn a must-taste destination. From the Asian-inspired flavors at Nightingale 9 in Carroll Gardens to classic barbecue at Mabel's Smokehouse in Williamsburg, the Brooklyn restaurant scene is something for everyone. Unwind with a bottle of vino at Soigne Restaurant and Wine Bar in Park Slope, Dream of summer at Clemente's Crab House in Sheepshead Bay, or be transported to a Gothic Irish monastery while drinking a Guinness in hand at the Wicked Monk in Bay Ridge. Restaurants are offering their choice of $28 prefix three-course dinners, $15 two-course lunches, 
or $12 weekend brunch. Visit DineInBK.com to view all of the participating restaurants and their menus. Make your reservations now to discover the diversity of flavors that Brooklyn has to offer. Dine In Brooklyn is taking place Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th. Learn more at DineInBK.com. And welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Daniel Lieberson. Self-proclaimed vineyard, vinegar geek. And well, the geek was there before, <laughs> so you just tacked on uh, yeah, the, the prefix. I, that that was not self-proclaimed, and then that gave it more more of a kitschy yeah. kind of fun history context. <laughs> and pantry proprietor from Lindera Farms. <laughs> and let's talk about that pantry because a lot of people do have vinegar in their shelves, but have no idea how it's made or what it really is exactly yeah and so um i would start by saying you know take a look at that pantry take a look at the bottle throw it out buy one of mine and um um i'll second that (laughs) and also don't keep it in your pantry above your stove Uh, yeah well so this is one of the (laughs) that's a hard lesson to learn uh so well vinegar is a relatively straightforward thing right it's 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 essentially a tertiary fermentation of sugar right so your first stage is sugar being fermented into ethanol then you have uh, your second stage is uh, being at ethanol. Then your third being the uh, transformation of that ethanol into carbon dioxide and acetic acid uh, through acetobacter, acetobacteria. And then you have vinegar for, for lack of a better term. And I mean, there are, there are you know, different technical uh, uh, standpoints. You know, you have to have 4% accumulated acidity. Um, it, you have to, you know, uh, there, are, there, are, there are certain nomenclatural terms that you can't, like, uh, you know, cider vinegar, what that has to have in it to constitute using that name and so on and so forth. Um, we keep it pretty broad. Um, uh, I've done at this point 30, oh, actually it'll, it'll be up to 39, uh, uh, this, uh, starting next month, uh, we're doing, uh, we're releasing, I hope, uh, uh, a butternut squash vinegar that is finished, um, a sunchoke vinegar that isn't quite finished yet. And when I get back from this, uh, I will find out whether it's actually going to come out or not. Um, the downside about doing new things with this, and, and, and I mean, one thing that is unique about the way I approach this is uh, the base ingredient is there at the beginning. These are not infusions. This is not cutting. This is not me taking a finished wine or, you know, a mix of vodka and water and throwing some blueberries in it and, ca- and fermenting that. This is with sunchokes, that is sunchokes being, you know, roasted, ro- uh, roasted off, juiced, uh, combined with uh, honey to make a mead, and then you let that go through, and then they're, you know, I'll do different things. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll take, in the case of the sunchokes, we uh, roast them all, or slice them, roast them, and then pul- uh, dry them and pulverize them, and so now they're steeping through, and, uh, you know, like, it, you just take different approaches based on the ingredients of, for, you know, 39 different ingredients, uh, 39 different vinegars means 39 different techniques. Blackberry, elderflower, heirloom pepper, honey, magnolia, pawpaw, persimmon. Cocaine. Wait, what? <laughs> There are so many, but each of them constitutes a different way of making and building that base vinegar. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and you know, look, I, I think when I started, and I, I think that this is, I'm going to give you a small kind of like aside to say, like, if you want to know why it's kind of silly to me when people in, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all of the chefs that would do this are going to hate me, including a lot of ones I work with. But like, it, it is dumb to pursue these things in your own restaurants, and it's dumb to do these things outside of a professional setting, it, it, unless you're going to like homebrew because it's a recreational activity. Like at the end of the day, 
it is the same level of kind of like rigor and repetition and experience that comes with learning how to work with any protein, any station, any vegetable. The more you're exposed to it, the better you get at understanding the processes because there are visual cues. There are sensory indicators as to what is happening and where you need to go and how to make course corrections. And I think that one of the mistakes a lot of people make when they take on a new technique, particularly in regards to like fermentation and, and you, know, even this, you see this with recruiter, you see this with kind of every trend driven thing that makes its way into the, into the, into the hospitality industry. Um, people kind of treat it as like an, as like an ancillary thing. And so like, once you've done it a couple of times, you go like, Oh yeah, cool. That's how you do that. And let's try a new one rather than going like, actually, if you do this 50 times, you're going to learn it 50 different ways. And when you're working a line and you're picking up a dish over and over and over again, you learn the nuances, even if it's only just it, 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 like instinctually and subconsciously, you start to pick up the visual cues, the sensory cues, like that's a big deal. And that really impacts quality. Ditto for this stuff, you know? So it's one of the things that I've, I've found so interesting about it. Eventually, I just stopped thinking about it as vinegar making. And I just think about it as a really, 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 really long cooking time. Yeah, no, it's true. And in Japan, there's this culture of shokunin, where it is the craftsman, the artisan that, you know, is, is embedded in that community and supported by that community as well. And Hello Kitty, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think in the same vein that you're speaking of... Um, it's, it's not about a restaurant seceding from everybody around them and being like this automaton. It's, yeah. it's about having those experts come into your kitchen either by delivery or product or, you know, academically and, yes. and teaching you that process. The thing that I think was most interesting to learn about starting a business around this um, was how important economic impact is. Um, things like that restaurants cannot have by virtue of the scope of the project. Things like purchasing power when it comes to packaging and fermentation vessels and things like that. Um, the fact that it is simply cheaper to make a large batch of something than it is to make a small batch of something. Um, your opportunity cost, uh, labor-wise, is much better spent with a focus on a specific set of projects rather than trying to like go in this uh, wide. We do all of these things ourselves, and I think you know. I, and then, uh, but on the other hand, right? I take a look at like you know a John Shields or a um, I, I apologize, I'm forgetting his name right now, but a single a single thread. Kyle Con uh, uh, Conodden, Conodden, yeah. yeah. Um, brilliant uh, 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 undertakings. Uh, uh, Lumi Island, uh, uh, Blaine Wetzel. You know, these are really cool, innovative, and inspiring projects. So, like, it, and it works, I think, in those contexts. But like, I, the, but then the flip side is you see, and you see this all the time, right? Like John Besh doing foam in like the early two thousands, and him like years later going like, "Why did I do that? That was not ever something I should have been doing." And 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 fair enough. Like, there are certain things where it's like I understand what my skill set is, I understand my strengths, and I know how to build on those. And and then not kind of having an ADD approach to like, I need to do this now because I saw so-and-so doing it on, you know, mind of a chef, or I have to do this because I watched chef's table and this, this guy was doing that. And so now I have to do that too, because the long-term impact of it is, uh, rather than kind of like reinvesting what capital you make, what, what m nominal margin really most restaurants have, you don't really like you're just kind of wasting your time. So simply asked, what should people do with your vinegar? I know you have this, <laughs> I know you have this gamut of flavors and you've worked with some amazing chefs, Brian Seaver, Brian Voltaggio, yeah. John Shields. Um, you've seen them activate your product. You've seen it mm -hmm. in their kitchens now. And one, that must make you feel kind of good. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to know that uh, you know you, you weren't a, a, a total fuck up. Um, so that that's that's that that was that. This is my kind of like oh oh I wasn't completely yeah. heartless. But what um, were the assumed and then unexpected ways that people were using your vinegars in these kitchens? Um, so it, it, I think the the thing that kind of floored me a little bit was when I started seeing uh, uh, bartenders get interested in throwing them into cocktails. Um, a couple of them went on their way into pastry. I'm always a little bit surprised at the different ways they get utilized because the original idea was, you know, I'd worked, worked around, uh, you know, kind of every station and not, not so much pastry. And I did some front of the house work too. And I, I did have these moments where I think like, okay, you know, like I, I it, it is annoying when you have to like really bend an ingredient, uh, uh, into a shape that works for a different station. Right. So, you know, taking a look again at uh minus that we were talking about earlier, I remember we, uh, we used to do a good streak with it. So you're taking this Solera, um, style vinegar, uh, that has, you know, uh, on aggregate, you know, at that point, probably 20 something years worth of age in it, you're cooking it down. <laughs> so all those aromatics and all the, com- the, you know, the complexities that are built up over that period of time, uh, gone, uh, might as well have, you know, just bought in a, a, a white wine vinegar and thrown some seasoning agents into it at that point, you know? Um, but you had to at the same time, cause the causticity was so high that if you just went in raw with the thing that they were doing it at the time, like uh, it would have, it just would have blown up people's palates. So I wanted something where it was really versatile enough to where you could use it anywhere. And so that meant low viscosity. That meant, um, it had to be relatively that like the acids really needed time to, to, to muddle. And you couldn't, you, you didn't want to do a, a, a Solera or an Orleans style where you're constantly incorporating a new alcohol and therefore you're constantly reinvigorating those, those acids, the sharper aspects of them. So you let the whole batch mellow as opposed to doing that, which is not how it's done. And I mean, you've, you've, you've seen it, uh, uh kind of over the world at this point. It's, it's not popular because it is slow. Um, and it's a shameless plug, but in my book, Acid Trip, coming out August 8th, yes. You wrote a book? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more, Michael. But it's part of the reason I didn't put Solera. I almost didn't include balsamic. I, yeah. I, there were reasons why I, I chose not to have a home cook experiment with these long, long, yeah. long processes versus your long, long Because they would have found you and, and thrown you in a river. Yeah, yeah, it's not a... It's also, it's also like, let, let's, you know... I don't want to get too far into it because I'm going to get yelled at by anybody who's ever made anything in a barrel. But I, I just, A, I, I, you're ultimately charging people for your rent, right? Like at the end of the day, you're letting something sit there. And I don't really know exactly where um, the point of diminishing return starts for trying to flavor these things. But my best guess is it is earlier than most people anticipate. But the narrative of something sitting in the barrel for five years, 10 years, 15 years is something that people use to sell a product fundamentally. I'm going to bring this up during my Coopered show yes, later in the sorry. season, next season. But yeah, so I, I, I um, you're doing a Coopered show? Well, we'll talk about that <laughs> please, on there. Please, yeah. But I want to get back to you because you, you praise everything that's happened around you from culinary history to chefs, but you, you've made some spectacular products. And one of them I really want to highlight because yeah. it, it still haunts me is your ramp vinegar. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. It's it's hard to find because Sean Brock bought it all at one point, but <laughs> we have no, we have it back yeah. uh, for you, a little bit longer. You originally until uh, they go extinct. Even before taking a sip, told me, "Get ready, it's going to taste like drunk nachos." <laughs> and from a culinary perspective, you had to build that flavor profile. Mm-hmm. So so tell me about that one in specific, specific and why that kind of is is much bigger than just vinegar. Well, I think you start by kind of having an end goal in mind 
and then you take different routes to try and figure out how to get there. So sulfides are the heat component to any onion allium, right? Um, sulfides are also excruciatingly volatile. So once they get exposed to, ox to oxygen, they oxidize extre extremely quickly, they dissipate, and they go into the air, right? Um, sulfides are, are used uh, for um, uh, 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 sulfonating wine. That's, that's, that's where the name comes from, right? You kills bacteria, but then it dissipates into oxygen, so you can do a massive overdose of it. To, vintners will do this, right? Um, and then within a day or two, it's completely dissipated. Um, so bearing that in mind, the goal became doing a multi-iterative uh, set of fermentations so you would capture different flavors of it so rather than sitting there going okay i'm not going to be able to keep fresh ramp flavors the entire way through throughout aging and mead making and everything else but i can do a malolactic ferment i can use that's the first batch i used a, a different vinegar i make uh, elderflower to preserve it and so i created kind of a ramp pickling liquid which i think every uh anybody who's ever so much a step foot in a professional kitchen is overly familiar with and has a a, a love-hate relationship with because it's great, but then we always remember cleaning ramps, and it's like, ah, oh, shit. Um, and then finally doing the, the baseline uh, mead ferments, and the finished product is, is, is really cool to work with. But I actually think it, it is, as, much as, um, as much as I love talking about the taste, the ethos is kind of the, the determinant for me. Um, I, I, I get a little, uh, a little verklempt about uh, chefs buying bulb on ramps or, or foraging them themselves. I, uh, I go out with a box cutter or extremely sharp knife. Uh, I just take out the leaves. Um, grow back every year. It's a completely sustainable practice. I still keep it to a third of the colony. And even clipped ramps will grow a flower and be able to go to seed. Um, it is a really slow-growing uh, colony, a spring ephemeral. So the more people uproot the bulbs, the less likely we are to have them going forward. And I've seen people, I've seen chefs go out to patches uh, in the northern Virginia area, who, who I know, and essentially like eradicate a lot of these, uh, a lot of these colonies. Um, I, I saw one very near uh, where my parents live go down by like it, we from from year one to like year three or four was probably down to about twenty-five percent of its original. Uh, uh, coverage so like that's 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 one of the things i like to highlight because it's like okay cool yeah you want to get all these bull on ramps you're going to wipe yourself out of a product or you can buy this and get way more longevity out i of mean it. talk about sustainability this is a renewable product if you treat it in such a way yes and you have a vinegar that's kind of in line with that too which yeah. is your hickory one yeah the shag bark um it naturally sheds the spark year, year to year you work with the bark um i work with falling bark farms uh so they they actually make a syrup and they sell that so i take that um and then i take the bark as well i char that that gets aged along with it and then the final product is you know this sweet smoky um woody kind of mapley uh, vinegar that just has a, has a ton of dynamism to it and from a ecological standpoint it's if anything it's it's net positive um so, yeah. so let's dispel the rumor that vinegar is made of bad wine, of yeah. bad produce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, garbage. I, I mean, no, let's, be, let's be clear. It currently is being made from those things, <laughs> but, like, it should not be. Yeah. This is one of the things that drives me drives me nuts when it comes to food. I, again, going back to that point of, like, well, health food tastes bad. The, stuff like this, we have this idea that if you want to buy something that is ecologically sound or, 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 or good for you or good for the environment, that, like, you're sacrificing quality or it's somehow less indulgent. And that's just such bullshit man like I, you see the what people are doing right now with fully uh vegetarian fully vegan burgers and i like i would yeah okay sure i'd rather you know maybe do uh, uh you know something at, at barbalude but like at the same uh, conversely would i rather have that or mcdonald's i'd rather have the freaking beet burger like why would i want that like weird toxic 
thing shaped like a burger that never ages. So, so, so this is one thing that always kind of bothers me because I think that the, the it's just a it's just a phrase people are used to or a mentality that people are used to, and it's just meaningless just do some research you know this not even a lot like google it's a thing um so yeah i get i get a little i get a little worked up well i feel like people can extend this conversation by going on linderafarms.com learning all about your vinegars uh, um again listening to this episode and kind of dissecting the diatribes that did happen in wonderful, wonderful ways. Because I think it's important to see something as kind of ubiquitous as vinegar be bigger than just the bottle itself. And there are stories behind it, and there are practices behind it, and there are people behind it. I'm guessing we've hit the wall? Yeah, uh, yeah pretty much. <laughs> we, we, hit the, we hit the wall a long like, time ago in our relationship, uh, but I keep on bringing yeah. you back. Yeah, no, very, 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 very fair statement. I, um... Uh, we'll, we'll go into the uh, uh, the work that we're doing on sustaining seconds for small farms uh, next time, I guess. Excellent. Thank you so much, Daniel. And again, go to linderafarms.com and buy all 39 vinegars. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Mike. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thanks to Dine-In Brooklyn. Check out dineinbk.com for wonderful dining options this week and next and actually any time of year uh music by cookies and david tattashore engineering and one last thing if you're not an hrn and that's the acronym for heritage radio network.org member please become one it's people like you that keep us on the air and get to hear wonderful people like daniel talk about vinegar you keep saying wonderful i don't think you know what that word means no no (laughs) No. not at all (laughs) thank you again hope to have you back here next tuesday three cheers listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.